electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. And the s and is one point away from turning positive. Thanks, Scott. Hi, everybody. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. Bank of America says fund managers are the most bearish they've been this year. Goldman says we could be hitting the debt ceiling sooner than expected. St. Louis Fed President Bullard says more rate hikes ahead. The S&P, meanwhile, at the highest level in two months. Unless today's action is a sign the rally is fizzling out, we'll look at whether you should bail or stick with the stock market. Plus, Moody's Mark Zandi says the Fed needs to pivot. This as one in five Americans are using installment loans to buy groceries. And new data from CNBC shows pessimism on the economy is at a record high. If Zandi's right, how much damage could more rate hikes do? We'll debate. And Slow Ventures' Sam Lesson says it's time for AI models to reset and start from zero. It comes as Elon Musk says he'll start a rival to ChatGPT. Sam joins us live ahead to discuss. Let's start with the markets, though. See if they can turn positive here on the session, Don. So, Kelly, you mentioned all of those kind of push and pull elements that are happening in the market, and that's playing out today because, as Kelly points out, we're just about flat on the session right now. If you look at the S&P 500, 41.49 is the last trade there. Just about flat on the session, down about one point now. At the highs of the session, we were up about 18 points, down 11 at the lows. So, again, right in the middle of that trading range, but still above 4,100. 33,950, the last trade there for the Dow Industrials, about one-tenth of one percent declines. The Nasdaq down about two-tenths of one percent to 12,136 for that composite index again. So some modest moves here, but underneath the surface, a lot of different movement happening out here. One place bullish is what's happening in the housing market. We got some more bullish single-family housing starts, building permits data out earlier. And for that reason, we're seeing a number of home builders out there. Now, within the S&P 500, Pulte Group, Lennar, DR Horton, and NVR, you can see all up about 2 to 3% in those trades here. And for at least Pulte Group and NVR, I'm not going to put stars next to them. I'll put yellow check marks because they both hit 52-week highs in trading today. And the Spider Home Builders ETF is about one and a third percent as well. So keep an eye on those home builders, single family starts and building permits, driving a good amount of that story. And then one other stock that's moving to the upside in a market way is NVIDIA. The chip maker is up about three percent right now. Part of the story today, first of all, you can see here, it's been a momentum trade for the better part of this year to the upside, up about 28 percent over the last 12 months. But today, analysts over at HSBC who were among some of the biggest bears on NVIDIA over the course of the last several months, have now kind of changed their tune, issued in essence maybe a mea culpa type, a double upgrade from what was in essence a sell rating all the way up to a buy. They think that the AI, artificial opportunity, Kelly, opportunity far outweighs any concerns they had about data center possible weakness. So NVIDIA shares up 3%. That's one of the reasons why I'll send things back over to you. Yep, all the buzz, that double upgrade today, Don, thanks. The better the market's rally gets this year, the more it's hated. The S&P 500 is up 8% since January 1, but fund managers are the most bearish they've been now all year. That's according to B of A's fund manager survey taken in the wake of SVB's collapse. Bond allocation, get this, has reached its highest since March of 2009. 
Even in real estate, investors are the most bearish they've been since July of 2009. And this is with the XHB up again today and up 14% year to date. On top of that, Goldman's Jan Hatzius warning we could hit the debt limit sooner than expected. He says weak tax collections so far in April suggest an increased probability the debt limit deadline will be reached in the first half of June, adding we have been projecting Treasury could operate without a debt limit increase until early August. Despite all that, St. Louis Fed President James Bullard telling Reuters this morning the economy is resilient and the central bank should continue raising rates. And with the S&P 500 touching its highest level in two months, Peter Bookvar points out the market is practically rallying itself into another rate hike next month. For more on all that, we turn to Brian Weinstein of Morgan Stanley Investment Management and Andres Garcia Amaya is the CEO of Zoe Financial. Good to see you both. Brian, I'll start with you because bonds are super popular again. What do you make of that? Well, it makes sense, especially if you go back a couple of weeks when tenure notes were closer to 4% and two-year notes at 5 um, I think investors are smart to park their money there. Whether you have to bearish on equities at the same time, I'll leave to somebody else. But uh, I think bond valuations continue to attract investors. Uh, cash looks great. And the Fed raises rates 25 basis points more. It looks even better. You think it looks even better because they're basically causing more of a slowdown, possibly more of an accident? Yeah, I mean, the Fed, well, the accident thing we'll come back to, but certainly uh, they're fighting inflation. They're keeping a lid on things. And if you look at the $2 trillion parked in, in Fed repo, um, they're giving investors a, a very cheap alternative to other assets, right? You can just buy cash and earn 4 to 5%. And that's it's been a very long time since you had that. Andres, people are also super bearish on real estate. They're bearish on stocks more broadly. Do you, what do you make of the fund manager survey? Do you take it as a contrarian sign? Meaning, you know, bulls would say, hey, we love to see a hated rally. That means it can keep going. Yeah, I think part of this rally is due for the fact that we didn't have a banking crisis, right? To, to a certain extent, that is good news. But now we're faced with the music of what is going to drive the next leg when a money market fund gives you 4% returns without much risk. Right. So what would you say about that? I think that the stocks, uh, especially here in the U.S., are stuck in this range until either one, inflation really gets back to 2 or 3%, which allows the Fed to lower interest rates and make equity more attractive versus the other options, or earnings revisions start to actually go upwards rather than downwards. And from that perspective, you know, last time I checked, uh, it's not in the cards for earnings revisions to go up in the next couple months. Even with though we've been off to a, what some would say is a decent start, uh, Andres, to the earnings season? I know it's early. It, it is super early. And I think uh, it's important to remember that uh, earnings season is taking into account January, February, and obviously some, you know March. But March is really when the the world changed, right, with, uh, with Silicon Valley Bank, et cetera. So I think we're going to have to wait to see more of the guidance for next quarter rather than just looking at uh, backwards. All right. So, Brian, let's kind of put this in a broader landscape then. So people are betting that the Fed's going to hike again, especially uh, given what the stock market's doing. And yet we think that's going to keep bond prices doing. So you think yields have put in the highs for the year? I think I think most likely, yes. Um, I think the danger would be if the Fed didn't hike this time and data stayed sticky um, and they lost control somehow. But yeah, it feels like tenure notes in that 410-ish range or you know, maybe they can go a tiny bit higher, but it feels like they're a buy up there. Um, you know, it's, it's hard to see them through much through three and a quarter um, unless the data starts to turn. So as you just said, it's in a range, right? Tenure notes really have been in a, a tight range this year. The two-year notes been harder, right? Five down to call it 350, 360 during sure. the mini crisis. Um, so again, I think two is above 420, 430, 440. You know, that's a, that's a good buy. Um, so yeah, I think it's reasonable to consider that the, the highs for the year are in. What about bills? I mean, how are they behaving, especially now that Goldman is kind of introducing more uncertainty into the exact timing of the debt ceiling? 
Yeah, listen, the debt ceiling is coming up more quickly. They're absolutely right. So I think you're going to see noise on this in June. Um, that's why you see three-month bills in a little bit longer, starting to trade a little bit uh, uh, messy, messy, a little bit higher in yield. So investors will take out a premium because the government has shown no signs of willing to be, being willing to address it. We know they love to go to the 11th hour. Um, and, and so you're going to see dislocations in the bill market. Um, people will be there to buy that, uh, take advantage of it. But it's going to feel scary when, uh, when we get closer to June. And ironically, we have a lot of household participation, Brian. Let's say I'm a household who owns bills that just happen to mature when we're in the middle of a debt ceiling problem. And it, I'm, I'm still going to get my money back just maybe a little bit later, or would certain bills just not get repaid? No, no, no. I don't think there's a there's a, a big crisis. Uh, I, I think everything gets paid back. It's just a matter of how much noise you get around it. And listen, I don't think people are looking at the day to day pricing of their of their bills as the number one investment. So I think it's more noise. We've seen it before. Um, hopefully they don't push it too far. Uh, it's not good for the United States. It's not good for the dollar. Um, but it'll all be okay uh, when when it's over. Andres, that's why I was struck by Leader McCarthy visiting the New York Stock Exchange yesterday and making a point of giving this speech during market hours and emphasizing that he wants you know if you sort of read between the lines of what he's said on CNBC, he wants to take advantage of this opportunity that he thinks will otherwise kind of pass. That's not something that's going to reassure people who are hoping that maybe we wouldn't have a fight this time around. Yeah, no, like, ultimately, I think the stock market in particular is going to focus on earnings and is going to focus on inflation. Sure, there's going to be some noise and some you know headlines around what, what happens in the next couple months. But once we look past that, Earnings is going to drive the story, and if we don't see earnings revisions go up, uh, I, I I go back to my earlier comments. It's just hard to see all-time highs in the horizon. Even so, I know you've liked international stocks, Andres. I mean, are you really excited about them, or just relatively excited about them? <laughs> Good question. Relatively excited. Going back to my earlier comments, money markets fund at four percent. It's hard to get excited about pretty much anything else in the stock market. Having said that. The, the reason I think it's important to have global diversification is that international stocks actually have a valuation floor to them. So from that perspective, it gives you a little bit more upside than where U.S. stocks are right now, which is, you know, eight time, 18 times future earnings. All right. We'll leave it there. Thank you both. Great to see you guys today. Andres Garcia Amaya and Brian Weinstein. Now let's get to the banks where both Bank of America and Goldman Sachs were in the red. B of A is now green after the results this morning. Bank of America posting its best fixed income currency and commodities revenue in over a decade. They also had a 25 percent jump in net interest income year on year. Different story at Goldman. They beat on earnings, missed on revenue after that almost half billion hit tied to the sale of consumer loans dealing with Marcus. They posted a surprise miss on FIC or fixed income currency and commodities as well. Let's get some reaction now from Chris Marinak. He's director of research at Janie Montgomery Scott. And David Ellison is Hennessy Fund's portfolio manager. Welcome to you both. David, I'm going to start with you as the buy side guy here. And what, you know, do you do you breathe a sigh of relief having gotten through these results or do you kind of go, oh, OK, it's going to be a long year and, and an exhausting one? <laughs> well, it's been a long year already. I think uh, I think we're I think we're going to see much the same the rest of the year. I think the the companies are going to, you know, battle the the cost of funds, and um, you see Apple's now in the game. But uh, I think generally the banks uh, have done a better job than everybody thought they'd do three weeks ago. Three weeks ago they had the whole industry failing, and now they seem to be have plenty of liquidity and they're making money and they have capital and they're trying to make loans, but. I think the real battle is going to be managing, and I don't think it's a battle, it's just a management issue, managing the cost of funds, trying to keep the money and, and sustaining their margins, which uh, have come in a little better than I thought. But again, I think the last month of the quarter was when things really changed from a, a, a spread perspective. So, so far, so good. 
Did you jump in when some of these names were, you know, I mean, a lot of them still are trading at much lower prices since before uh, SVB's collapse. Did you kind of look at that as, as one of these opportunities that bank investors only get, you know, maybe a couple times a decade to jump in and buy? Absolutely. I think I'm, you know, and I've been on this program many times saying, you know, I hope things get worse so we have lower prices. And, uh, you know, the, the last couple of weeks, there's been some great opportunities to buy names. They haven't recovered that much. But um, my real hope, and I know I'm not talking to people who really, you know, I don't think they want to hear it, but I'm hoping for a credit cycle. And then we can really see who the better managers are. Clearly, we saw some bad managers on uh, asset liability management the last three weeks, and we'll probably see a few more. But now I think if we get a credit cycle, then we've got a real opportunity to invest in the space and actually have some significant outperformance, which yeah. we've struggled to have for almost a decade now. You know, you're, you, like many, are, are, you know, think the big names are best positioned, but you said you're not shying away from some of the more broken stocks. You know, I'll let people kind of think for themselves about what those might be. Any other ones you'd want to shout out that you think, hey, maybe they weren't right at the center of the problem. They were kind of taken down with the group and you think they offer an attractive entry point? Well, I think you saw State Street yesterday. You still have Western Alliance. You still have PacWest. I mean, you know, there's these names that are, you know, you don't get these opportunities to to buy them when everybody's worried. And I've actually, I know I'm taking up a lot of time. I'd like to see what Chris says about some of the think comments I've made. I've known him for many years as well. But um, I, I think this is a time where you trade these things. State Street was a was one that got, you know, really got beat up yesterday. The numbers were, you know, obviously not great, but they're not that bad. And I think the stock's recovering. So you can make a trade. But again, I think they're trades now. Um, and, and I think we're range bound until we get, you know, some real clarity on where rates are going to go, yeah. what the yield curve is going to look like and what credit's going to look like. All right, Chris, let's talk about Bank of America in particular here. Some of the deposit trends. What are the most important data points that, you know, as you kind of look through things today? Do you, why do you think the shares turn positive? Well, I think that the deposit costs rose less than they could have. Uh, we saw the deposits rise about 35% of the change in Fed funds. That's what we call the deposit beta. Their overall funding pricing was worse, about 70%. But the reality is, Dave's right, we're going to continue to fight the repricing of funding costs. It's the widest we've seen the bank industry for pricing on deposits and funds compared to Fed funds forever. And so it's about three points wide, and that wow. needs to narrow closer to two or two and a half. So we're going to continue to see that again in the second and third quarter. And that's one of the challenges for B of A and all banks, for that matter. I was a little underwhelmed by the deposit growth, or I should say lack of growth at hmm. B of A. They had a 1% decline. It was up about a percent and a half on average, but the period end balances were down. Now, the good news is they're down less than the overall industry, which was off about three and a half using the Fed data for the end of March. But I still think that the deposits did not have this big surge, uh, which was the narrative in March, which really proved to be false. We didn't have the big outflows to B of A, as folks thought. Let's kind of dwell on that for a second, Chris. Why do you think that is? Well, I think most banks called customers the uh, second, third week of March and were very proactive in explaining how to spread deposit insurance around, how to, how to be proactive. Banks are really a source of advice and no different than administering PPP back in 2020. The banks are actually doing a really good job of holding customers' hands and explaining what happened. So I think there were outflows the 13th, 14th, 15th of March, but I think that right-sized as the month finished, and I think the actual results 
were a lot less painful than folks thought. So I think the real numbers coming out now is very healthy, but we still have challenges. And Dave's right. We have the credit cycle still ahead of us, even though I don't think it'll be that bad. We still have to get through it and understand really where credit is. And I think that the, the deterioration is still ahead of us the next few quarters. Yeah, and correct me if I'm wrong, both Bank of America and PNC on Friday, which was pretty notable, had less uh, in terms of their loan provision. I mean, doesn't that seem a little bit like a low quality beat or if you want to sort of result to you and we know, hey, probably they're going to have to increase that. Maybe they should arguably be doing that now, given where we see things going. Well, generally speaking, they're increasing reserves. I think if you look at the build up the last three or four quarters, it's been positive after kind of pulling back in, in 21. But overall, the, the banks are in really good position for reserves and they continue to have way more reserves than losses. They're kind of now set up for four to five years of coverage. So we can have problems go up and the banks are fine. I also think that the earnings cycle for the banks is strong. That gives them more latitude if losses happen sooner or are deeper. But again, we have to really see where the credit problems are to, I think, get the therapy for the stock. So we just have this trading range that we're in, and we see that day to day. And, and today with B of A or the KRE, as you're showing, is, is actually uh, just you know par for the course. Right. No, and I, again, I appreciate the, the granularity here as you go through these results. David, I'll give you the last word. I think that you know, the industry is uh, in pretty good shape. Um, I don't see the companies talking about a credit crunch. I don't hear it. I don't see you know, I don't hear it on the calls. I don't hear a lot of fear about non-performers or the lack of loan growth opportunities. So I, I think they're telling us the economy is pretty good despite what we had to go through three weeks ago or so, uh, which says to me that, you know, I, I'm not sure if, if this there is a slowdown. I don't think we're in a recession. I don't think we're, we're close to a recession. And so I think inflation is going to be the story, like you've talked about for ad nauseum on your programs. And what the Fed does is going to be important. So um, yeah, I, I don't see a recession in the bank results. Well, that is the perfect, uh, I think, takeaway quote and setup for our next discussion. We'll leave it there both. Uh, thank you both, I should say, David Ellison and Christopher Marinak from Janney Montgomery Scott. Quick programming note, Bank of America CEO Brian Moynihan will be joining Scott on Closing Bell around 3.15 Eastern today in a first on CNBC interview. You definitely don't want to miss that. And coming up, a novel new way of regulating AI. Slow Ventures partner Sam Lesson says the industry should press the reset button and give data providers the chance to opt in from here on out. Could that ever really happen? We'll delve into it ahead. But first, Moody's Mark Zandi still thinks the U.S. can avoid a recession in the coming year, much like David Ellison just said. He may be optimistic, but the rest of America, not so much. We'll get you the details. And as we go to break, here's a look at the markets. Dow's down 25 points. S&P down only one point at 41.50 as it threats to go threatens to go positive. Nasdaq down 18. Russell's negative. They're the worst performer today, down three quarters of a percent with the regional banks down again. The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? 
At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back, everybody. It's not just fund managers in a bearish mood these days. Main Street, too, is in a negative mindset on the economy. And Steve Leisman is here to explain. Hi, Steve. Kelly, yeah, unfortunately, with the CNBC All-America Economic Survey this quarter, we are breaking records, but not the best kind of records, the worst kind of records. If you take a look at our poll of 1,000 people across the country, what you'll find is that 69% are pessimistic about the current situation in the economy, and they're pessimistic about the future. That's an all-time high. 53% uh, a record high are saying the economy will get worse. And 24% saying that is a bad time to invest. That's a record low. The middle one there, I forgot to tell you, is a record high. I want to explain to you how we got here. Usually when people are negative about the current situation, they think things will get better. You can see that in the data from uh, 2008 when 95% thought the economy was lousy, but 39% thought the economy would get better. It's not the case right now. If you take a look, 85% think the economy is fair or poor, but only 19% or 18% see improvement. And one of the reasons, if we look down and we dig down further, we look at what's happening with wages versus inflation. Just 5% say that their wages are going up faster than inflation. 26% tell us to break, they're, they're, they're staying about even. But 67% believe they're falling behind when it comes to inflation. Now, there is a bit of good news, or one other piece of bad news, which is that 66% think we're in a recession now or going to be in one soon. But only 16% are worried about their job security, including a chunk of people who, are, uh, who don't believe there's going to be a recession. 83% are not worried, and some of those folks think there's going to be a recession. So job security is one positive thing. And jobs, of course, we know are a positive thing, but we're not seeing that show up in the overall views of the economy. Inflation appears to be dominating and recession fears. Well, and, and like we were saying last year, inflation is the recession, right? For when the Consumer Sentiment Survey bottomed last June when gas prices and inflation peaked, that was them saying, I don't care that, about the business cycle. I care that my, my situation is bad and feels horrible. You know, I'm curious how the, all yeah. of these data, did we, did we have this back in like 07, 08, 09, how it would stack we, up to back then? Yeah, we did. And the trouble is that there's not the optimism out there for the future. It's one thing to have a lousy view of the current situation, but not have necessarily, uh, right now they don't have a positive view. I think some of that is on the political leadership here, that they haven't really shown that there's a way out of the inflation problem, either at the Fed or necessarily uh, at, in the administration, because what it means is higher interest rates, and people are telling us that they're not uh, taking out loans, they're not, they're less likely to buy a car, less likely to uh, uh, do a whole bunch of things because of high interest no, rates. No, I think this is so important as we, on the macro level, debate the data. Set. Well, this is what consumers feel. And you can say they have tons of cash. Real, but. The only good part about that, I can tell you, Kelly, is that about one in five Americans are going to do something right now to take advantage of higher interest rates. In a, Buying a money market, a CD, sure. or something like that. And that will crash the banks, but it's all going to be high. Steve, stay with us. Let's talk a little bit more about this record pessimism. Perhaps what's explaining it is in a new lending tree survey. It shows that one in five Americans are now using buy now, pay later apps 
to buy necessities like groceries, not just big ticket items like appliances or TVs. And my next guest says the Fed needs to pivot fast to avoid a recession. Joining us now is Mark Zandi, chief economist at Moody's Analytics. It's good to see you, Mark. Do you want to just jump in here? I mean, how important when you look at the data is this consumer pessimism as an input to what happens from here with the economy? Well, it matters. I mean, at the end of the day, a recession is a loss of faith. You know, consumers lose faith that they're going to hold on to their job and they pull back on their spending, loss of faith by business people that they're going to sell whatever it is they produce and they pull back on their hiring and get into this kind of self-reinforcing cycle. So this matters. Uh, uh, But I I will say there's lots of different surveys. The, The one I find most useful, engaging prospects for the economy recession uh, and this no no slam against the CNBC survey, but it's the conference board survey. I find that to be much more prescient. And you know, if you look at that, it, you know, people aren't feeling great, but it's about consistent with this long run average, and, and no sign of any weakening there. And that's the key to uh, that losing faith. The, you see this big collapse in confidence. People running for the bunker, stop spending. I just don't see that. Yeah. It's, Mark, it's interesting because you're sort of saying the Fed needs to pivot or else we'll be in a recession. So given the discussion and kind of debate we were just having where the bank analysts and investors are saying the banks aren't telling us we're in a recession. But then we have Steve's survey and they said, well, the consumers feel like we are in one and you say the Fed needs to pivot. I mean, how, what are the most important data points for you? Well, look, look uh, I don't want to be Pollyannish. The economy is struggling with the high inflation and that explains why people are so down. I mean, the inflation is a problem. Uh, Steve pointed out it's cutting into into people's purchasing power, and they are using credit. The buy now, pay later is the credit they need to kind of fill the hole and maintain their spending in the in the face of the declining purchasing power. So uh, the economy is struggling; it's weak. Uh, it, in my view, inflation, which has been the number one priority for the Federal Reserve, and sh- as it should be, is coming in. All the trend lines look great. I, I, I f- it feels like it's coming back into target, and I can say that with increasing certainty. And given that and what's going on in the financial system, the banking system, it seems to me this will be a very opportune time for the Fed to stop raising interest rates. Yeah. And at the same time, we have these. So you've pointed out, others highlighted, uh, Mark, that, you know, we've seen consumers actually have possible positive disposable income lately because of that inflation delta relative to their earnings, things like that. They still, you know, here sitting on uh, all this cash. Why isn't that translating into more optimism? about the state of things? Uh, it's a lag, right? I mean, people are, st- and inflation's still high. I mean, people are still going to the grocery store and they're still paying three buck fifty, sixty cents for a gallon of regular unleaded. Their, their rents went up, uh, you know, 10%, 15% last year and they're paying these higher rents. Uh, so they're, you know, what they're feeling right now is a reflection of all that, all that stuff. But inflation is, is coming in. And, you know, when you conduct this survey a year from now, I, my sense is if things don't, you know, we don't get hit by another shock and the Fed does the right thing here, uh, those survey responses will be better. So, you know, it takes a little bit of time for the reality of what's going on in the economy, sure. for the data that we're observing, for people to really feel in their everyday lives. Steve, I guess I would just say to put a button on this, that James Bullard is, is seeing it differently. I mean, again, with Reuters this morning, he's saying the economy is resilient. The St. Louis Fed's financial stress index went back to normal levels after the SVB collapse that, you know, he, he kind of takes the, the data points about the consumer, spins them positively by saying that they're still you know, there's still spending power there. And that's why he thinks we should go to five and a half percent and keep hiking. Well, but there's another side to it, too, which is he looks at the idea that people's wages are not keeping pace with inflation. And he sees that that's where a lot of pain is coming from. And also how people are altering 
their lifestyles and their lives and their spending patterns to, to, uh, to counteract inflation in their lives. So he looks at that and says, you know what, I got a bunch of problems out there mm -hmm. and I'm going to triage them. I have to put inflation in the highest order because people are going backwards as a result of that. Um, I don't know that that necessarily takes into account some of the forward-looking indicators and some of the indicators. And he also probably looks at a survey like this and he says, you know what, people's job security is pretty good. And, and one thing maybe we haven't given Powell enough credit for here, he did make this call about the idea that we could bring down job openings and not necessarily lose jobs. You know, knock on wood. Don't. Don't, don't say it. <laughs> don't say it. But that's where we're at right now. Yeah. We've lost, I don't know, a couple million maybe a million and a half job openings, and the unemployment rate has fallen. Yeah. That is an escape that, if it ends up being true, would be a remarkable develop. I don't care if there's no job openings at all. Right. Well, here's the other we thing. got the million, like, like we got before, the jobs. If we press pause now, quick final word, Mark. Yeah, the other thing is wage growth is coming in, and unemployment's still 3.5%. Well, so. that's because the other unremarked aspect, which is another good piece of good news, is the increase of labor supply. Mm. Yeah, We have exactly. had 800,000 come in the last two months, and that seems to have taken some of the edge off of labor supply. And the question I think that Zandi's bringing up and everybody's thinking about is will the Fed incorporate this quick enough right. to pause and or pivot and keep the economy or not do too much to bring the economy to recession? That is the crux of it, absolutely. Thank you both, our Steve Leisman and Mark Zandi. We appreciate it today. Still ahead, Apple is betting big on India and not just on manufacturing. We'll look at the uphill battle the iPhone faces there and how CEO Tim Cook is planting his flag. The exchange is back after this. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. I'm Bertha Coons, and here's your CNBC News update at this hour. Ukrainian President Vladimir Zelensky visited troops in eastern Ukraine today as the war approaches the 14th month mark. Zelensky thanked troops for their service and was briefed on the battlefield situation. Russian President Vladimir Putin was also in Ukraine, visiting command posts in Russian-occupied territory. Poland has started building an electronic barrier at its land border with Russia to monitor and counteract illegal activity. The barrier will run for 130 miles and is expected to be completed in the fall. Polish Interior Minister Mariusz Kaminski said he is sure it will be the best secured EU border. And Iran is attempting to reimpose strict dress codes as the government tries to reassert control. State media said thousands of messages were sent to Iranians over the weekend, reminding them of the crackdown on women not wearing hijabs. Nationwide protests broke out last year following the death of a young woman in custody of the so-called morality police. Kelly, back to you. Bertha, thank you, Bertha Coombs. Coming up from a revolution to a reset, we'll look at the future of AI regulation with VC Sam Lesson and tell you what Elon Musk wants to do with artificial intelligence. We're back after this, Dow's down 26.
Welcome back to The Exchange. The AI wars heating up with a new rival to OpenAI's ChatGPT. Elon Musk laying out plans for his platform on Tucker Carlson tonight after accusing the Microsoft-backed company of training AI to lie. I'm going to start something which I know you could call TruthGBT or uh, a maximum truth-seeking AI that tries to understand the nature of the universe. And I think this, this might be the best path to safety in the sense that uh, an AI that cares about understanding the universe uh, is unlikely to annihilate humans because we are an interesting part of the universe, uh, hopefully. <laughs> My next guest has some thoughts about what to do about AI. He says all of these models should restart from zero to resolve regulatory issues. Joining me now is Sam Lesson, partner at Slow Venture. Sam, it's good to see you again. Am I getting this right? You're a little cryptic sometimes, but that's what it sounded to me like you were suggesting. Well, look, I think what we're seeing now is there's a big narrative around the dangers of AGI in the distant future and kind of a lot of these tools at play more practically even with disinformation. People are right to be concerned. I mean, the technology is unbelievably cool and unbelievably useful in specific ways, but it also can be applied in very scary ways. And there's almost there's no government oversight of any of this. You know, a lot of technologists push on this question of how do you regulate the silicon? How do you kind of control who has the power to kind of do these kinds of computations at scale? I think that's a little bit misdirection, candidly. It's much simpler than that, which is these are all models that were trained off of the Internet. They're trained off of, you know, copyrighted data in a lot of cases. And if we just said to everyone, hey, chill out, let's do the simple thing first, which is say you guys used a bunch of scraped data you didn't really have the right to use to build these things. Stop that and then force people to opt in uh, to actually allow their data to be used in these models. You'd buy yourself quite a bit of time to figure out whatever you want to do next, because all of a sudden these models which are very cool, can still be used for all the you know, protein folding you want and all the positive stuff, but a lot of the most scary stuff comes off the table pretty quickly. It's interesting because while we all can sit here and go, well, they'd never agree to that, but at some point, you know, is that the direction we might be headed, Sam? So if, if all the uh, providers of data piece by piece start saying, no, you can't use this, no, you can't use it, I mean, are we going to get to that kind of endpoint uh, anyhow? Maybe we're jumping ahead too many years, I don't know. We'll see. I mean, the problem is with these things is, you know, once the freight train's running, it's hard to call it back to the station, right? And so you are seeing, I mean, I'm expecting, I think everyone should expect a bunch of class action lawsuits by creatives, right, who have had their work scraped and are being, you know, repackaged by AI systems into new image types, you know, and all sorts of things that come out like that. But I think you could, if you want to be more aggressive and move faster, just say, look, we all know how this came together, right? There's a bunch of data, you know, people give their data with some exchange to Google, people have a public index that Google can crawl them and send them referral traffic. AI doesn't do any of that, right? AI takes all the data and gives nothing in return. I think it'd be pretty easy to step in at some level and say, hey, like there's no economic trade here. There's no rational trade. This data was all scraped. Let's just reset that stuff. And, and I'm not sure how whatever, I mean, I take your point that, you know, the data comes from somewhere, but is it really that easy to gatekeep this data? You likened it, for instance, to how Apple, you know, gatekeeps whether uh, advertisers can track you or not. But that's a little bit, you know, contained to my iPhone. How do we gatekeep all of the data on the Internet if you want to make sure that companies aren't just able to scrape it going forward? Yeah, to be clear, you don't. And, and to be, I think some of the AI companies will argue, right? They'll say, well, look, everyone's going to do this anyway, so wouldn't you rather us than them, right? I think that's a lot of the open AI stories. If people are going to build AGI, AGI or something super scary, it's better for it to be us hmm. than the Chinese, right? Um, but I think the reality is, is that the number of companies that are able to do this at serious scale is still pretty limited, right? And so you really could be much more pointed in your regulation to start. You could make a policy 
it would be selective enforcement, but you'd enforce it against the players that matter. Um, and then you kind of evolve from there. But I think the thing to keep in mind is, again, this world is moving super class. And I want to be super clear. The tech is incredibly cool and yeah. is going to play out in really interesting ways. The question is just, you know, how do you make sure that government has, you know, uh, a say in kind of how this plays out? The people have a say rather than it being, you know, a very small group of technologists who are making these calls. We're showing the publicly listed AI stocks there. Open AI is, a, is notably missing. Is it structure? I mean, is this going to be one of the greatest whiffs of all time? Can this company even go public the way that it, and, and, well, and I know that philosophically they this was but they are like Ben Thompson was right. They are becoming a consumer tech company. And so are they, you know, one day are they going to be up on that board or no? Well, if you believe Sam Altman and kind of the rhetoric around OpenAI, their only interest is AGI in the long term. And all this other stuff is just, you know, steps along the way to generate money so they can go after the really big goal. Um, you know, I think there's two ways it ends up being a whiff, right? Uh, one is, well, what they're building is cool. Um, you know, the question is who has access to data and who has access to distribution. The big platforms, I think, are still in by far the best place to take advantage of AI in the mid to long term. I mean, Apple, I'm sorry, uh, Amazon's recent announcements of what they're doing and kind of aggregating models is both completely predictable and probably wiped out about 200 startups that were after that opportunity already. Wow. So this, it's not clear. I mean, I'm being a little bit facetious, but sure. a lot of companies. So, so, you know, I think it remains to be seen. We're in the earliest innings here. You know, if OpenAI, it's hard to imagine them going public, the way they've structured their VC deals, the way they've structured their rhetoric. But, you know, Sam has said, Sam Altman has said on many occasions that, you know, the battle cry for the company and for the, the team is just this question of AGI. And the only reason they care about money at all is because they're going to need so much of the money they, in order to build uh, AGI. How the public markets play into that, right? you know, maybe there's some spin outs. You can imagine them kind of carving off parts of what they're doing, spinning those out into commercial companies to raise capital for their long-term mission. But if they're sincere, it's pretty hard to imagine them as a public company. Fascinating. There's NVIDIA in the green as it says, fine, we'll take that spot. <laughs> Absolutely. Totally. Sam, thanks for your time today. We'll check back in soon. We appreciate it. All right. Sam thanks Lesson so with Slow Ventures. Still ahead, a new era for Apple as the company opens its first store in India overnight. How key is this market to Apple's future? We've got that next. Apple shares up half a percent, by the way. Stay with us. Welcome back. Apple is looking for a new generation of iPhone users, opening its first store in India overnight. CEO Tim Cook was at the store in Mumbai to welcome the first customers. Talk about the significance of this. I return to Steve Kovac. And I, I should mention, Steve, we just uh, saw in the Wall Street Journal this week, India's population possibly surpassing that of China's right. uh, at this very 1. moment. 1.4, I think. Absolutely, yeah. which is 1. interesting. 1.4 billion, to be clear. Right. Yeah. And so that's, that's part of the reason they want to go there. But look, that's always been the story with India. On the consumer side, though, there is a rising middle class that by nature of opening these retail stores, Apple thinks they can tap into. So the first one's opening today in Mumbai. That's what we just saw pictures of Tim Cook and his uh, colleagues there, you know, doing the whole cheering thing. And then tomorrow, though, this is where it gets interesting. So that's the consumer side. It gets interesting tomorrow because our Sima Modi reporting that he's going to meet with Prime Minister Modi hmm. to talk about supply chains and building out more production capacity there to kind of avoid the problems down the road that we saw in China last year. Is, they have moved some operations to India already. Have those Are those considered successful? Yeah, it's, it's not just move. Yes is, is a short answer, but it's not just moving there, it's adding there, right? So one thing they've done is they've been able to start making the new iPhone models in India 
uh, closer to the actual launch at the same time they're making them in China. That's one benefit there. The other benefit is they just want to expand that capacity. There are various reports out there, but the goal, you know, being thrown around kind of by Indian officials and some others is eventually they want to make 20 to 25 percent of all products in India. Wow. And that would alleviate a lot of pressure off of China. They're also looking to places like Malaysia, Vietnam, and Thailand to build stuff, too. Uh, very big moves uh, for the company, Steve. Yeah. Thank you. We Thank appreciate you. it. Steve Kobach reporting. Still ahead, Netflix and United on deck with results. We've got the key things to watch and how to position on both of these names with Netflix in the red today barely and United adding 1%. Plus, one name that reported this morning and one thing that very much got our attention in that report, earnings exchange is next. Welcome back, everybody, to today's earnings exchange. Let's put the banks behind us for a moment and look ahead to some key consumer names reporting this week. And we'll start with J.B. Hunt. J.B. was the mystery chart we showed you before the break. The transport stock missing on the top and bottom line and making some pretty surprising commentary on the state of the trucking industry. Here's what their president had to say on the call last night. We're in a challenging freight environment where there is deflationary price pressure, for an industry that continues to face inflationary cost pressures. Simply stated, we're in a freight recession. Let's bring in Gina Sanchez, Chantico Global CEO and the CNBC contributor for the trade on this and other stocks uh, as we preview and review. They're saying the word recession, Gina. J.B. Hunt still up 1% this year, surprisingly. Yeah, you know, J.B. Hunt is one of these stocks that continues to perform despite challenges. And, you know, she is right. We, we are seeing a freight recession, and I don't think we're at the bottom of that yet. I think that if you look forward, um, this is consistent with slowing demand. Slowing demand means you're going to ship less stuff around the world, and this is exactly um, where it comes home to roost. What was good about their re report was that despite those inflationary cost pressures and deflationary prices, they still manage to keep their margins, which is to say that they have really good expense discipline. And that matters in the long run. So if you want something that's going to continue to perform, you'll have to be patient with this stock. Um, but you, this is the kind of stock that, that can be potentially defensive, although it's going to suffer a little as demand continues to decline probably for the next few months. Yeah, we also wonder maybe did it take some of the pain earlier uh, than others as it spreads? We'll see. Let's move on to some Netflix, though, which reports uh, imminently the streaming stock has more than doubled off of its recent lows. But now we have that awkward failed live broadcast Sunday night overshadowing things. Julia Borson is here with our preview. Julia? Well, what's so interesting here, Kelly, is this is the first quarter for which Netflix has not forecast how many subscriber additions it's going to have. And that's all because it's trying to shift attention away from the top line subscriber number and towards the revenue and the profits. And that's because they're really focused on two things. One is crackdown on password sharing. Investors are really hoping that we'll learn more about their timeline to roll out what they call paid sharing, which is an alternative to just sharing passwords for free here in the U.S and some insight into how it's done in the markets where it's launched. And then also that ad-supported tier. How well is that ad-supported tier doing? So even though the company didn't guide for it, analysts are looking for the addition of about 1.4 million new subscribers. And then the revenue number to watch is 4%. That's the percentage revenue growth that Netflix itself forecasts for the quarter. All right, Gina, what do you do? I don't know if I've heard your take on Netflix lately. 
You like it? You know, it's interesting. I, you know, I was a little pessimistic, but I will say that what they're doing is they're growing at the margin. So they're they're trying to go for more revenue from the same number of, of holders through that password sharing program that they're going to they're they're going to roll out. So that could potentially add revenue, but not necessarily subscribers per se. Um, uh, and then you know the ad sharing. They've also, by the way, lowered um, their co their their prices in some international markets, and that's a volume play. You know, so. There, they could add, you know, more subscribers at a lower ARPU, and so, you know, all of that taken together says that Netflix is putting one foot in front of the other in order to continue to grow to grow revenue, um, you know, despite the fact that they are growing at the margins, and you know, this, this is exactly what this company should be doing where they are. Even with a you know a macro slowdown, we'll see. Julia, any more uh, dust settling here between Netflix and some of its competitors as they they did finally get the series uh, up yesterday? Is that right? They did. Look, live is not Netflix's expertise. There were so many years where Reed Hastings, now former CEO, he's now executive chairman, where he said, we're not going to do live sports. We're not going to do live news. It's just not our thing. Now, certainly they've been moving slowly in that direction. They've done some live comedy specials. That that has gone fine. Sunday night did not go that well, but maybe um, we'll hear some more about it on the call and whether or not they're going to continue to push forward there or whether or not they're just going to stick with their bread and butter which is, of course, is on-demand content. Yeah, although writer's strike, you hear any, what, any scuttlebutt about that yet? Yeah, I mean, we, I'm hearing from my sources that a writer's strike is expected to happen. The contract between the Writers Guild of America and the studios expires on May 1st. I've heard it's going to happen. The question is just how long it is. Interestingly, Netflix, because it is so internationally diversified, may be better protected for a writer's strike because it does have access to so much content from outside the U.S. And also its viewership is also um, very much diversified. So they may be better positioned than some of the other studios, depending depending on how long the strike drags on. Well, they got the ultimate trump card. They got ChatGPT. What's to worry about? Uh, they can just have that right everything. Julia, thank you. We appreciate uh, it. Not I, quite I, yet, Kelly. I'm kidding. I'm a creative. I don't want that to ever happen. Maybe the writers can use it. Anyway, <laughs> let's turn to United Airlines, which is expected to report a loss tomorrow. They already issued a profit warning last month in the face of rising capacity and a possible slow, uh, slowing or softening in demand. Let's turn to Phil Lebeau. And Phil, rival United, uh, I'm sorry, Southwest, back Chat in the headlines today for all the wrong reasons. Well, yeah, you want to talk. You, well, we can start with Southwest. Uh, this was an issue where they had a ground stop because of an issue, a technical issue. Firewall from a third party vendor was not doing what it was supposed to do. So instead of saying, OK, well, we'll figure this out on the fly. Th they do what all airlines do. You shut it down until you get things figured out. Took them about uh, 80 minutes, I think, for the total amount of the ground stop. Things were restored shortly after noon, I believe. Uh, and the system is, you know, they're in the process of getting back on schedule. All right. So United then, what's the story here, especially because the airlines I thought had been off to a decent start this year? Well, they are off to a decent start just because they're reporting a loss. Remember, there's a number of issues in there that are factoring into the adjusted loss that's expected. Full year, they haven't changed their guidance of earning between 10 and $12, which will be interesting to see whether or not they keep that guidance because the expectation on the street is not at that level at this point. But it's all about whether or not we are seeing near-term demand start to slow down. Remember when Scott Kirby said in March, we see a little bit of softness? Immediately you saw people say, okay, the, the, here we go. The great demand that were there was there for the United and the other airlines has going away. 
I don't think that's what he meant at the time. So we'll see what kind of clarity he gives us in terms of what they're seeing, not only for the second quarter, but then for the rest of the summer and the rest of this year. Yeah, the stock, Gina, trades at less than five times forward earnings. It's up 11 percent, maybe 13 percent so far this year. Look, this stock has so much uh, uh, negative news already baked into it. As soon as we got that negative guidance, the, the analysts went even further than that. Um, and, and so, you know, a lot of what's priced in are not just the expansion of capacity, but also just jet fuel prices and a lot of that. And as we see jet fuel prices come down, there are some potential um, positives that could happen toward the end of the year. You know, that, that will also um, be an, uh, uh, an important factor. So, you know, I think that there's some room for for some positive movement just because so much negative has been put on this stock now. All right. Thank you all. Gina, we appreciate Gina Sanchez and our Phil LeBeau today. That does it for The Exchange, everybody. And we're going to get pretty frank next hour on Power Lunch because Robert Frank is in for Tyler Matheson. I'll see you right after this break. There he is. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 